Difficult, isn't it? I think Hebrews is jolly hard. You get the big picture stuff, I get that. But some of the details and following the author's arguments, you sort of think, why did he say that? What's the point of that? And so you've really got to work pretty hard. And this particularly is one of those very difficult, controversial passages. So tonight I have a couple of questions for you right off, well, in a few moments, off the beginning. I want to tell you a story about a man by the name of Mickey Cohen. Was anybody here alive in the 50s? About eight of us. Maybe a dozen. Were any of you, have any of you heard of Mickey Cohen? Besides Rhonda, who heard me say this story this morning in the 8.30 service. Mandarin service. Mickey Cohen was a gangster. American. A flamboyant gangster. Used to dress very nice and was very brazen. Anyway, in the course of his career as a gangster, somehow turned up at an evangelistic service where he demonstrated some interest in the truths of the gospel, in Christianity. And people were surprised by that. I mean, they knew who he was. And so some people then started to visit him. Some of the significant Christians back in the 1950s thought in America, wouldn't it be great if Mickey Cohen could become a Christian? What a testimony that would be to the gospel. So they started visiting him, whether at work or at home or whatever, they had contact with him, presented the gospel with him. And over the course of time and particularly one evening, Revelation 3.20, somebody kept arguing with him, trying to persuade him to accept Christ, and so Revelation 3.20, they persuaded him, open the door of your heart and receive the Lord Jesus and he will come in and you will be saved. And he did. Everybody was rejoicing that Mickey Cohen, this flamboyant gangster, had been saved. What a testimony he would have. Well, as time passed, his life didn't change. So some of these self-same Christian leaders went to see him and to confront him. Basically to say, listen, as a follower of the Lord Jesus, you've got to give up your profession as a gangster and you've got to change friends. You can't hang around with assassins and murderers and all the rest. You've got to change. His reasoning went like this. We have Christian footballers. We have Christian athletes. We have Christian politicians, Christian businessmen. Why can't we have Christian gangsters? Mickey Cohen is an illustration of somebody who accepted Christ verbally, whatever, but who did not commit to following Christ. Here's a question for you. Do you think it's possible to receive Jesus as Saviour but not as Lord? Do you think it's possible to receive Jesus Christ as Saviour from sin in giver of eternal life and forgiveness? but not to receive him as Lord. There's a huge debate about 20, 25, 30 years ago, evangelical circles about that Lordship Salvation debate. You might want to come and talk about it later. My answer is no. You can't receive Jesus as Saviour if you do not receive him as Lord. I'm on very thin ice right now because I'm going from memory. I want to say the New Testament never says, but I've got a sneaking suspicion it may say in just one place, but I can't recall it. The New Testament very rarely says Saviour and Lord. It always calls him Lord and Saviour. He is Sovereign Lord. And you can't receive the Sovereign Lord 
simply as the Saviour. He comes as Lord or he doesn't come at all. Here's my question for you. Three questions, in fact. You might want to turn to the people beside you. You'll have 15 seconds, so you need to be quick. How do you know someone's a Christian? How do you know I'm a Christian? How do I know you are? How do you know? You'd call out. Somebody may not have thought of that. Turn to the person beside you, around you, whatever, in front or behind you and give your 15 second answer. Go. How do you know someone's a Christian? Time's up. Is it possible to begin the Christian life and not be real? Is it possible to start but be pretending? Five seconds. It's a yes or no answer really, isn't it? Third question. Can a real Christian, can a person who was a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus depart from the faith, drift from the faith, give up the faith? Can a fair income, genuine, born again, repent, believe, accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour, person, lose it? That's a 25 second answer. For some. Here are the answers, then we'll close in prayer. How do you know someone is a Christian? Answers. How do you know that I'm a Christian? How do I know you are? Answer. Call it out. Sorry? They behave with integrity, so their lifestyle. Okay. Anything else? The way they act? Yep. Their fruit, their life. Anything else? Professing Christ as... Professing Christ as... Thank you. Professing Christ as Lord. Yep, anything else? I know they're a Christian because A, they say so, and because two, they show it so. Their life is consistent with what they profess. Anything else? It's part of, I guess, isn't it? You know, we can go on and amplify that, but yep, I think that's certainly part of it. Even their habits, hearts, desires and things like that begin to change and become more godly. That's how you can know. But at the end of the day, really, you don't know that I'm a Christian or not. You don't know. I say so. I live so. I demonstrate a very high level of godliness and integrity. Sometimes. (laughs) Who said that? At the end of the day, you're not the judge. God is. And I don't know if you are. But I have reason to hope by what I see, by what I hear, by what I observe, by your desires and your hearts, I have reason to hope. We had a dear sister in Christ, Sui Mei Ma, Sui Mei Lo, who died and has gone home to be with the Lord Jesus. How do we know she was a Christian? By those same things. She said so, 
she lived so, the desires of her heart, all of those things matched. We have reason to believe. End of the day, though, we don't get to judge. God does. Is it possible to begin and to not be real? Yes, of course it is. Mickey Cowan, you can begin the journey, but not make it. Parable of the four soils. That's relevant for tonight. Jesus said, so I went out to sow seed, and some of it fell on the path, and some of it fell on thin, shallow soil, and some of it fell on this soil that had thorns and thistles and other things in it, and some fell on good soil. And the response of the soil to the seed that was scattered are the various responses that people make. What's interesting is this one, the first one, the path, they reject it, they never start. You know, well, we know people like that. Don't anything to do with it. Don't give me the gospel, don't give me Jesus, don't talk to me about God. Not interested. That's those people. These three all start. All of them receive the word. All of them begin to bear fruit. This one lasts a little time. Sun comes, shrivels up. They start, but they don't endure. Third one, the thorns and thistles, they start. They demonstrate, profess and demonstrate some sort of reality, but then eventually the cares of this world and other things and persecutions enter into their life and they stop as well. That's the last one, the good soil. These people receive the word, transformed by it, and they bring forth fruit. They're transformed by the word of God. And they're the ones that we have reason to believe that they are genuine believers in the Lord Jesus. Can a real Christian depart, drift? Well, guess Amen. Can a real Christian lose their salvation? It all depends on what you mean by the question, really, but end of the day, my answer is no. I'm not saved because I believed and accepted Jesus. I'm saved because he saved me. He did something in my life. He saved me. He keeps me. And because he did it, there'll be change in me. My life will change. My habits will change. The fruit of my life will reflect what he has done in my life. Uh, But it depends on how you understand the question. Is it possible for me to stumble into sin? Yes. Is it possible for me to drift? Yes. Is it possible for me to go over here and to deny Christ and say, I don't know him? Yes. Peter did. But for the true Christian, the genuine Christian who does that, there is an immediate conviction of the Spirit. There's an immediate... Uh, that was bad, that was wrong. The early church did it when they were persecuted. When they took uh, a mum and put her baby in the next stall, in the next prison next to her, it was crying out and she was nursing the baby, breastfeeding the baby and the baby's crying out to be fed and all she had to do was to deny Christ and she could have a child and she could breastfeed and nurture him. That's all she had to say, I deny Christ. Some of them did. Some of them didn't, many didn't. But some did. Did they lose their salvation? Well, maybe some did. I'm pretty sure some didn't. That they repented. They got it wrong. Like Peter got it wrong. So is it possible for true Christians to drift, to depart? Well, yeah, I guess so. Well, this passage tonight sort of confronts us. 
What do we do or say to people who say, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus, but they're not following him closely? What do we do? we do anything? Well, the New Testament certainly says that we are to. This is the most important decision of all. Of all the decisions that we ever get to make, this one, about Jesus. And it's not our decision about accepting Jesus, it's our decision about following Jesus. That's the most important decision. Mickey Cohen made a decision to accept Christ. He did not, as far as I know, make any sort of commitment to bow the knee to the Lordship of Christ and to follow him, to do as he commands. He hadn't made that commitment. This passage, the author of Hebrews, whom some think is the Apostle Paul, but we don't know who it is. Maybe it's somebody who knew Paul very closely and read Paul. He's writing to a group of people who had started the journey. They've said Jesus is Saviour or Jesus is Lord. And some of them had drifted. Some of them had stopped. And some of them were also now, the ones to whom he's writing in the church, were on thin ice. And they were in danger of slip sliding away. And the author of Hebrews is very concerned to motivate them and encourage them. He says at the end of chapter 5, which is what Pastor David spoke about last week, that by now they should have moved on. They should be far more mature. They should be able to teach others. But instead, somehow they have regressed. When we had our first child, Shane, brought him home from hospital and he was gifted and a remarkable, highly intelligent child, just like his mother. And we had a second child. When we brought Kate home from hospital, by that stage he was walking. Was he out of nappies? I think he was out of nappies. I think he was reading books and studying Hebrew and Greek. He was remarkable. Kate came home from hospital and guess what he did? Regressed. Went back to wetting the bed, back into nappies, back to wanting to be spoon fed, feed me he wanted attention just like children can regress so the author of Hebrews is basically saying so we as followers of the Lord Jesus if we're not moving forward then we're wanting somebody else's attention and we're going to regress and the danger is as for some, they had regressed to the point where they had drifted away and they had not just denied Christ but they had abandoned Christ, they'd given up Christ, they'd gone for somebody else or some other way of salvation. So that's the passage that we have in front of us. These guys had not gone on. So if you have a look at chapter 6, verses 4 and following, it's where we pick up the gist of it. Up until verse 4, the author talks about we, you, us. Verses 4 to 6, he changes tack. He no longer talks about we and us and you. He talks about those and they and them. And he does so until verse 6. Is that significant? I think so. Because then in verse 9 he resumes the we, the us, the you terminology. Well, what does he say about these people in verses 4 to 6? He says very strongly, It is impossible, impossible. Some people 
from Erasmus and other incredible Greek scholars have tried to dilute this a little bit by saying it's very difficult. But the word is impossible. It is impossible. In the case of those who have, well, what? Who are these people? They've once been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God and the miracles of the coming age. They've had some sort of significant spiritual experience. And certainly, depending on how you explain those terms, will determine whether you end up in one of two camps. Whether you think we're talking about fair income, genuine, true followers of Jesus. Or we're talking about people who have had some sort of spiritual experience like Nicky Cohen, but who have not yet been born again. They have, they have professed faith, but it's not transforming, it's not real, it's not genuine. It's outward, it's not inward. However you want to explain it. And you either end up in one of two camps. Who are they? Well, they've been enlightened. They've been brought into the light of the gospel. They have heard the gospel. They've got some spiritual knowledge, um, maybe even to the point where they can repeat it and talk about it to others. Uh, They've been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. Tasted does not mean uh, that Rhonda has a pot of soup on the stove cooking away and I come along with a little spoon and I taste it. Doesn't mean that. Tasted means she served the plate, the, the soup, it's in a plate, and I have received it and I have enjoyed it. It's the same word back in chapter 2 verse 9 where it talks about Jesus tasted death for all people. He didn't just taste it, he fully experienced it. That's what the word I think, my view is what the author means here. They have fully experienced the heavenly gift. What's the heavenly gift? Well, it's a bit vague. We're not told. We surmise. He means maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe it's Jesus. Maybe it's they've been baptised. Maybe they've been catechised. Maybe they've had communion. They've tasted the heavenly gift, the reality of Jesus. They said they're Christians and so they've been welcomed in. They've shared in the Holy Spirit at least to the point of being convicted of sin, some movement of the Spirit, some prompting in their own heart from the Spirit. Some would say they have received the Spirit. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They've heard it. They've enjoyed it. Maybe even they're teaching it. They've tasted it, experienced it. And the powers of the age to come. They've seen signs and wonders and miracles and um, experienced something of God at work. They've had some sort of significant spiritual experience, both in terms of salvation, spirit, scriptures, and of miraculous signs. Judas did all of those things. Judas had all of those experiences, and yet was not born again. And Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, those confrontive words that not everybody who says to me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven it's not what you say, it's what you do he says on that day many will say to me Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name cast out demons in your name perform powerful deeds they had 
taste of the goodness of the word of God, they had experienced the powers of the age to come. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Go away from me. Significant spiritual experiences that we would look at and we would go, I think they're in the kingdom. How could God do that or use someone like that and this not be real? It appears to be real. Well, depending on how you understand those phrases will determine, as I said, whether you end up in the camp of saying, we're talking here about genuine born-again believers or, in my view, what we're talking about are people who are professing faith but who are not genuinely born again. They say they are, but their life is not going to demonstrate it. Now, the parable of the soils, it's soils two or three, somewhere in there. They start, they demonstrate a little bit, but they don't endure, they don't go on. So who are those people that we're talking about? In my view, we're talking about those who are professors of faith, pretenders. Even to the point maybe they're not even aware that they're pretending. What do they do? Well, verse 6 says, having had all of these significant spiritual, uh, spiritual experiences, and even after all of this, they fall away. See, the language is a little bit vague. What does that mean? Fall away. Well, I think it means they abandon, they give up. Because it goes on to say they are crucifying the Son of God for themselves all over again and holding him up for contempt. These people who begin, don't continue. The result is it's impossible to bring them back to repentance. Impossible, that's what the passage says. Impossible to get them to repent. Well, this falling away is to defect from the faith, to withdraw their allegiance to Christ. Somehow, in their life, something has happened and they come to the point where they basically say, if you ask them, are you a follower of the Lord Jesus? They would say, no, not anymore. I've given him up. I've changed my mind. I no longer confess that he is Saviour and Lord. I think he's a good moral teacher, I think he was a nice bloke, or whatever they want to say, but he is not my Lord. I do not follow him. In fact, I reject him. That's what I think, to fall away. I think that's what the author means. It's very strong, stark. It's like Judas. He betrays Jesus and he doesn't change. He not only stumbles, he falls away. We have to make a distinction because we all sin. We have to make a distinction between falling into sin and falling away. It might very well be one leads to the other, but there is a distinction. It's quite possible for us to stumble as genuine followers of the Lord Jesus. But these ones have strayed, they've abandoned, not just fallen, they've fallen away. We might rebel temporarily, disobey the Lord Jesus, what God wants to do in our life, but these ones reject him permanently, purposely, deliberately, intentionally. Yeah, Something like that, I think, is the gist of it. And to that end, then, they crucify the Son of God all afresh. It's interesting the author says the Son of God. It's obviously referring to the Lord Jesus, but he uses his exalted title, the Son of God. They 
knowing who he is and what he has done and all the glory about him, they still abandon him. They reject the Son of God. Well, it's impossible to bring them back to repentance. Impossible for whom? Impossible for us to bring them back? Yep. Impossible for them to bring themselves back? Well, as long as they have that attitude, yep. Possible for God? Yep. Is God done, God's done everything that he possibly could do. There is salvation through the cross of the Lord Jesus, the death of his Son. If you reject that, what else can God do? It's impossible. It's the only way. There is no other way. So if you reject the only way, then it's impossible for you to come back. And the passage doesn't say it here, but back in chapter 3, the author certainly alludes to it. They've become hard in their heart. They have become unresponsive. And it's not a thing like this. It's more a process. It's a slippery slope. It's a thing that happens over time, as he illustrates in other passages. He goes on, verses 7 and 8, to give an illustration of this sort of truth from agriculture. He talks about how uh, there is land... And the rain comes upon it, verses 7 and 8. The ground that has soaked up the rain that frequently falls on it yields useful vegetation for those who tend it and receives a blessing from God. But if that same land receives the rain and it produces thorns and thistles, it's useless and it's about to be cursed. Its fate is to be burned. His illustration is basically saying, here is some land, the rain falls on it. Depending on what fruit the land produces will determine even our own evaluation of it. This is productive, this is healthy, this is helpful, this is useless, it's fit to be burned. And it's not, the author doesn't mean fit to be burned, get rid of the thorns and thistles so that I can give it another go, that I can plough it and plant the seed again. It's God's judgement. It's basically saying this is healthy, this isn't. This is to be accepted, that's to be rejected. That's God's evaluation. And so what the author, I think, is illustrating is these blessings of being enlightened, experiencing the Holy Spirit, tasting the heavenly gift, this is the rain, the spiritual blessings that God sends. What's our response to it? The fruit of our life, both our verbal confession but also the fruit of our life will demonstrate whether we are genuine followers of the Lord Jesus and God will evaluate. The author goes on then, Verse 9, 12. He says, not talking about they and them anymore, he then returns to the we and you statement, personalises it. He says, but in your case, the readers of this letter, dear friends, even though we speak like this, we are convinced of better things relating to salvation. We don't think this of you. You haven't yet drifted to the point of us going, you've gone too far. You're on thin ice. You need to get back onto solid ground. You've become dull of hearing. You've been slack and lazy and indifferent. You've become cool to the things of God. Uh, But you need to reignite that. You listen to what he says, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and your love that you demonstrated for his name. You've served and you continue to serve the saints. But we passionately want each of you to demonstrate the same eagerness to the fulfilment of your hope. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't drift. 
Chapter 5, you've become dull and sluggish and indifferent. Verse 12, we want you to endure so that you may not be sluggish, but rather imitators of those who through faith and perseverance inherit the promises. We will be known by our fruits. I think this passage is talking about people who profess faith in the Lord Jesus, but who are not true believers in the Lord Jesus. And we'll know, we won't know until their life demonstrates it. Parable of the soils. But the author back in chapters 3 and 4 is also bouncing off when he gets to this chapter another truth, a parallel of what happened to Israel that's still in the background of this passage. You just think about what Israel happened to Israel and then think about your own life where you're at and then we better move on and make some application. The people of Israel were captives in Egypt, were held captive in sin. God sent a deliverer, Moses. God sent a deliverer for us, Jesus. The people of Israel followed Moses. They sacrificed the lamb. They put the blood on the doorpost. They ate the Passover lamb. They participated in that. They left Egypt and followed Moses' lead. They observed the um, fiery, cloudy pillar by day and by night, God's visible presence, if you like. They crossed the Red Sea, saw God's miracles. They ate the manna on a daily basis. They saw the miracles of the bitter water being turned sweet, drinkable. They got to the foot of Mount Sinai and they heard the voice of God. And having received the law of God, then God gives them instructions that he wanted them to go into the promised land. And they said, no. They had all of these spiritual experiences. But when push came to shove, it was outward and not inward. It was a profession of faith without a transformation of faith, of life. That's the serious warning of Hebrews for us, chapters 3, 4 and now 6. That we can have these spiritual experiences and not make it. So the author is concerned that followers of the Lord Jesus follow Jesus. Not just say it, but do it. To not desert. If you go back to chapter 3, I'll just read you a couple of verses. Chapter 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart that forsakes the living God. Or chapter 3, verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would never enter into his rest except those who were disobedient? Chapter 4, verse 6. Therefore it remains for some to enter into that rest, yet to whom it was previously proclaimed they did not enter because, again, disobedience. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 11, make every effort to enter the rest so that no one may fall by following the same pattern of disobedience. It's not, I'm a Christian because on January 15th, back in 1973, I bowed my knees in my bedroom and I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life and to forgive me for my sin. That's when it started. But I'm a Christian because I continue to read his word and obey him and follow him today. That's what it's about. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying to us. As you have begun, so go on. That's the fruit that we are to look at.
I'm not going to finish the chapter, but if you have a look at verse, where is it, 11 and 12, you'll see, uh, 10 and 11, you'll see that there is this connection, as we've already spoken about tonight before, there's a connection between believing in God and the way we treat one another, our brothers and sisters. Verse 10, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love that you were demonstrated for his name in having served and continued to serve the saints. Which makes me ask the question, and it's a, I think it's a difficult question, is it possible to be saved genuinely, born again, and not stand with God's people? Is it possible to be a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus and not associate with his people somehow? My answer is no. I could be wrong. But I think the thrust of the New Testament is to say that if you love God and you love Jesus, then you're going to be part of his family. And that means accepting one another, wrestling with the issues and all the tensions that that brings, but not giving up on one another, but rather moving forward. So the author is saying, I want you to do that to the very end. Don't be sluggish, don't be indifferent, don't be cool or indifferent. Be passionate and imitate those who did persevere. And he goes on in verses 13 to 20 to talk about Abraham, who certainly did persevere. The key part of that paragraph is verse 15. And so by persevering, Abraham inherited the promises. If you go back and you think about or study the life of Abraham, you'll see that Abraham was a person who was certainly called miraculously by God to follow him, to leave his hometown of Ur, and off he went. But then immediately he's disobedient. He delays doing exactly what God wanted. He goes to a town of Haran where he waits for years before his father dies. And then he continues to obey. At the age of 75, God comes to him and Abraham still doesn't have any children and God speaks to him, gives him a promise. I'm going to multiply you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to use you. 75 years of age, no kids. And God repeats it, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17. And remarkably, the passage says, and Abraham believed God. Though he delayed, and though he made some other mistakes, and he got off track in a few points, he always came back to the point of saying, you said, I believe you. And then eventually he has Isaac. Chapter 22, then God says, when he's about, what, 14 or something like that, <clears throat> I want you to take Isaac, your only son, the child of promise that I've been promising you for decades, now that he's here, I want you to take him and kill him. What does Abraham do? Believes God. The passage says that he reasoned in his mind that God had said, so therefore if I am to kill him, then God must somehow going to be bring him back to life. So off he went and he was fully obedient to the weird instructions that God gave him. Obedient. Does exactly what God wants him to do. So the author of Hebrews is reminding us, um, be imitators of those who through faith and perseverance, like Abraham, inherited the promises. Don't give up. This provides an anchor for the soul. Verse 19. Let me finish with this. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. It's an anchor that provides stability in this life but also admittance into the next. 
I was going to give an illustration, but I won't, about Seaforth, where Rhonda and I used to live in Sydney, which has a harbour with all these very expensive million-dollar yachts and how they all have anchors and when storms come to Seaforth. But I want to give you a different illustration. <clears throat> Rhonda and I have had the privilege to climb bridges. Of all of the bridges in all the world that you can climb, Rhonda and I have climbed 50% of them. That sounds impressive, doesn't it? There are only four you can climb, so we've climbed two of them. Sydney and the Story Bridge. Both of them have something very similar, that you are tethered to a guardrail. You are anchored for safety. If you haven't had the experience, I certainly commend it to you. And the Sydney Harbour Bridge, believe it or not, though it's bigger, it's a lot easier to do than the Story Bridge because the Story Bridge is narrower and steeper and more frightening. But the Harbour Bridge is a breeze and magnificent. <clears throat> but if you have done it, and some of you have, when you go, they'll put a radio, a headset radio on with a battery pack. You are in radio contact. <clears throat> when I was 50, which was just last year, you're not supposed to lie in church, are you? <clears throat> I went with, I went with my li- a life group, and now many of those folk have left the church, and we went. And when they said you had to have a radio, I said, do you get code names? <laughs> to which he very wittily said, his name was Mark, he said, Princess is still available. <laughs> so from that day on, I was called Princess. Hmm. And off we went. They gave us... A, a, a suit that you have to wear which is not overly flattering <clears throat> there is a particular path that you have to follow you follow like a chain gang one after the other you're tethered to the guardrail and you have to move it along and, and so on you have the same power of supply you're all clothed in the same garments um, and you've suddenly become a team strangers as well as the life group and people who know each other were now all one together and we're journeying on you're on the same path you have the same guide you've got the same power supply you're dressed in the same garments and you form a team. It's not a bad picture of the church, is it? If someone, if someone decided to turn off their radio, to disconnect from the battery supply, to unclasp the safety belt, to remove their suit and to jump off the bridge, then they're not going to rejoin the team, are they? That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. We're in this together. But if you abandon, if you depart, it's impossible to find your way back. It's a one-way street. So don't go there. Do not presume upon his grace and forgiveness. Continue to obey. Continue to follow. So stay on the path. Listen to the guide. Remain tethered to the Lord Jesus. Keep wearing the suit of his righteousness. And then you'll complete the journey you'll get the photo. You'll have access to the visitor's room. You'll arrive at your destination as we journey together. Well, what does all of this mean for us? Well, do you know anybody who has fallen away? I do. Do you know anybody who has said, they followed Jesus, but now they don't? I do. And undoubtedly, many of you will as well. A dramatic one is that Billy Graham had a friend. His name was John Templeton. 
and John Templeton was a better preacher than Billy Graham. They used to travel around preaching the gospel. John Templeton professed faith in the Lord Jesus, but at some point in his life something went wrong. Something happened. And he drifted. And he eventually abandoned the faith, rejected Christ and denied him. Said he no longer needed or confessed Christ to be Lord and Saviour. Templeton, John Templeton, uh, became a successful businessman, a wealthy man, and is now the founder of the Templeton Foundation, where there is a $1.5 million Templeton Prize awarded every year to somebody who advances the cause for humanity, philanthropy, for the goodness of humankind, but with no belief in confessing Jesus as Lord. John Templeton once professed faith in Christ, but he drifted, abandoned, rejected, never came back. What about for us? Well, if you've decided to follow the Lord Jesus, then continue to do so. Be active in the pursuit. Don't just drift. Don't just go through the routines, but be actively, energetically involved. Read your Bible, pray, have fellowship with other believers, find yourself in a connect group, a life group, an accountability group. Give, use your gifts, serve wherever you can. Worship and witness for him. Just like the land, God's blessing poured out, bring forth fruit. What if it doesn't? Well then you'll only be fit to be burned. God's judgment. not sure if you're asking the question, but some of you may. Can I receive Christ, say that he's my Lord, but then do my own thing? No, I don't think so. Can I receive Christ and grow and serve and endure? Will I be safe? Yes. Well, what if I receive Christ, grow a bit, serve a bit and then stop? What will happen to me? Well, we won't have any good reason to believe that you have made it. You'll be like the soils, two and three. You started, but didn't endure. So where are you at spiritually? Have you stumbled? Have you drifted? Grown cold? Dull? On thin ice? Well, this passage is a warning to us and saying, get back on track. Follow the Lord Jesus passionately. Endure. Do not give up. Do you know the Lord Jesus personally? I guess it's the last thing I want to ask. Do you know him personally? Is there a relationship and a connection between you and him? Not simply have you had these spiritual experiences. Not simply are you religious. But do you love him? Do you know who he is? And do you say, he is my Lord and I will obey him regardless of what anybody else How's your heart towards him? Take your pulse tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you are a God who is at work in this world, that you are saving and transforming people and that you do desire us to be passionate followers of the Lord Jesus, obedient to him. But Lord, as we have read tonight, it's also true that there are others who are in danger, spiritual danger, drifting, of coasting, of being 
seduced spiritually. So I pray for them, Lord, that you might move in them by your spirit, but open our eyes as brothers and sisters likewise to speak a word in season and help all of us, not simply to call you Lord, but to demonstrate that you are Lord, both in our life, in our deeds, in our attitudes and in our relationships. Lord Jesus, reign in us and fulfil your purposes through us. We pray this in your name. Amen.